Clay Oglesby wrote about his visit to Authors Ridge, a graveyard in Concord, Massachusetts, where several literary and philosophical leaders of the 19th century are buried. At the gravesite of Ralph Waldo Emerson is an immense boulder of white quartz with a bronze plaque on it stating his name and these words. The passive master lent his hand to the vast soul that o'er him planned. Seeing himself, I assume, as the passive master, to the vast soul that directed him. A few yards further on, Oglesby found the headstone of Emerson's friend, Henry David Thoreau. Thoreau found his calling at Walden Pond with the message, Simplify, Simplify. And there, a white headstone the size of a large brick marked his grave. And the inscription reads, Henry. That's it. Henry. And Oglesby writes, There is humility in that headstone. There's a willingness to be remembered quietly and informally by posterity and all eternity. The stone doesn't name dates or years or accomplishments, and he says it has the humility of humus, of earth. Now, when the Apostle Paul directed his readers toward humility, it was like the difference between these two grave markers. When we have to be right, when we talk so much more than listen, when we think ourselves more important than others, we are Emerson's huge quartz boulder. When we are like Jesus, we are Thoreau's. Humility was not among the values of Paul's day. It meant weakness, and for many people it still does today. And yet, though Jesus was greater than anyone else to have lived, he humbled himself to the point of being executed in the form of a criminal. Though he could have pointed to himself, everything he did pointed us to others and to God. There was no marker on his grave. There were only the stories of how he lived. Now, today we are ordaining new deacons. To be called to be a deacon in this Baptist church is to have demonstrated some understanding of the humility Jesus exemplified in taking the form of a slave. By laying our hands on them, an ancient symbol, we signal to them our blessing of their humility and their other varied gifts. Those of you who have been ordained in the past, and we have quite a few, know that being a servant is an honor, but it is not easy. Being a servant means following the example of Jesus and saying to God, not what I want, but what you want. Being a servant means being a mirror so that when people look at and applaud you, 
you direct their gaze to God. And being a servant means being humble. A psychotherapist listened to a wealthy socialite talk about herself in session after session. And finally, he ordered her to go visit Niagara Falls, where she could take a long, lingering look at something bigger than herself. God's servants know they are worthy, but their egos are not inflated because they know God deserves the praise for every good gift. In this congregation, deacons are given authority to help determine spiritual needs and how to meet them. And that is no small task. And if you try it, try to do it all by yourself, you may expect to fail. If you do it with humility and God's help, you will help us and others turn toward God. This turning toward God is one point Jesus was highlighting as he faced off with the authorities at the temple. If we had started at the beginning of Matthew 21, we came in about two-thirds of the way through, we would have read the Palm Sunday story about Jesus entering Jerusalem to cheers and praise. And then we would have seen him go straight to the temple and overturn the tables of money changers and take out, just get everybody out. Cleanse the temple, we call it. The religious authorities were not pleased. Hey, we didn't give you the right to do this. Who did? And Jesus responds with a question that they found they could not answer in a politically expedient way. And so Jesus tells them a parable. A father tells each of his sons to go work in the vineyard. One son rebels against the father's command, but later changes his mind and obeys. The second son tells his father he'll go, then doesn't follow through on his word. One commentator relates this to the difference between repentance and hypocrisy. One woman, 93 years old, heard of the death of a much younger person, and she said, why couldn't it have been me? I'm 93 years old, and she was so young. I've served the Lord all my life, and I'm ready to go. And her son consoled or tried to, Mother, God left you here on earth for a purpose. He must have something else he wants you to do. And she said, well, I'm telling you right now, I'm not going to do it. (laughs) When God places a task before us, it's not like a parent telling a child, put your dishes in the dishwasher, clean your room, set the table, with discipline in mind if it doesn't get done. We have a choice as to whether we do what our divine parent asks us to do. If, like the first son, we have said no to a request, we still have a choice to repent, to turn around and say yes. If we have said yes to a choice, to a request, we may have said what others wanted to hear, but we still have a choice. Will we be hypocrites and not follow through 
or will we repent and do what God wants? We know the answer we want to give. We have great intentions of being humble, unified, compassionate, and obedient, and we fail. It helps to remember that Paul isn't writing to a single person. He's writing to a group of Christ followers who know they need each other to be faithful. They've been having some trouble with unity. You can read that within the letter. And so Paul is writing to encourage them to return their gaze to the one who emptied himself for us. Newsweek once reported that the Department of Social Services in a county in South Carolina sent the following letter to a deceased individual. Your food stamps will be stopped. Effective March 1992. Because we received notice that you passed away. May God bless you. You may reapply if there is ever a change in your circumstances. It can be a very impersonal world, can it not? And when people get brave enough to come into a church, they're looking for a group of people who will care, who are not impersonal, who will take notice of their needs and seek to meet them. And we do that well when we work together when we nurture each other, when we encourage each other, even when we rub against each other. Mark this passage in your Bible, Philippians 2. It's called the canonic hymn, from the word that means empty, the emptying hymn. We are to empty ourselves of ourselves and let God Take the space inside us. As we read it, we're reminded to turn first to Jesus and then to our church family, and together we can turn our good intentions into good actions.